This week's episode of The Weeds is sponsored by The Great Courses. The Great Courses Plus is offering our listeners a chance to stream hundreds of their courses, including Understanding Investments. It's a $215 value for free. You just go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash weeds. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash weeds. The Weeds is supported by Goldman Sachs. To learn about developments currently shaping markets, industries, and the global economy, subscribe to the firm's podcast, Exchanges at Goldman Sachs, available on iTunes. The following podcast contains explicit language. What happened in the news? Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds, Vox's policy podcast on the Panoply Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias. With me, as usual, is Ezra Klein, but we have had Sarah Cliff deported to France, I believe, so she is she is not with us. W- where is Sarah? France. She's in France. I saw it on Instagram. That that sounds almost as good as Tape in the Weeds. Well, maybe you know, maybe not quite as good. Yes, it's um, unfortunate. I mean, to be stuck in a in a city with no podcast at all. I think <laughs> in in the entire city of Paris, you have to eat bread. I think to subsist because because there's no audio to deliver. None of that you. nutritious weedsy audio. Exactly. It's right. uh, it's sad. So we we figured we would just proceed without her. Sans guest can be a great episode. I mean, not as great as when Sarah's here. Well, you, I, we're going to make the weeds great again eventually. Sure. But for now, we're going to be about as great as, as we can be as two of us. I'm going to talk about a new research paper that made big headlines. I'm going to talk about latest in the primary. But I think first wanted to talk broadly and I think conceptually about the idea of inequality and, and economic inequality that has played a sort of increasing role in, in left of center politics, but in a way that is not... I think always that well thought out or, or even clarified as to what it is that people are talking about right. when they a say deep, inequality a, is bad. A deep level of concern paired with, I think, a certain amount, even for people who give a lot of thought to this, I think paired with a certain amount of vagueness on the details. Like even when I talk to people who really do inequality and we begin drilling, okay, what do we mean? What do we mean? What do we mean? When you really get down, the question of what are we concerned about and why there's often, I think, a lot of causal issues. Are you, are you concerned about something caused by inequality? Or are you concerned about something that inequality is a byproduct of? Yeah. That, that often gets really complex. And so I was a philosophy major in college. So, so oh, stepping, okay. very, stepping very back impressive. a couple thousand miles into the sky, you have a project where one traditional view about income redistribution has been a kind of utilitarian view. And the basic logic here is if you take $10,000 out of Bill Gates's pocket, he's probably literally not going to notice. Like his, his net wealth swings by much more than that on, on a day-to-day basis. It has no negative impact on his quality of life. Whereas if you give $10,000 to someone who is struggling to pay for college or someone who is facing eviction from her apartment, that's going to make a huge, massive improvement in her quality of life. Right. So you could say, okay, this is why there's obviously a lot of questions you can ask about that. But broadly speaking, if you take money from people who have a lot of it and give it to people who don't have that much, you will increase the net sum of of awesomeness. But a lot of people don't like utilitarian style moral reasoning. Uh, People have a, a lot of objections to it, philosophical objections. And one particular philosopher, John Rawls, really felt that this kind of utilitarian thinking 
tramples on a lot of what's most valuable in the liberal political tradition, particularly the idea that people have individual rights and that, you know, you can't just say Johnny is not going to be allowed to speak his mind anymore because he's so annoying to other people that silencing him and stifling dissent will increase human happiness, right? right? But he wants to create a philosophical justification for the kind of welfare state liberalism that was being created in the United States under the Great Society, that was being created in, in England under Clement Attlee. To I, the, I have a weird question about this. Yeah. For you. Something you just said that, that I'm curious about, because you know much more about Rawls than, than I do. Were you at Harvard when he was there? Was he still alive? When well, he was, he was emeritus. He was okay. alive, kicking around. And I, I believe I, I picked up his, his former hat rack at an auction. Oh, well, that, um, that's very exciting. So it's a deep personal connection. <laughs> sure. Um, you just said something interesting a minute ago, which is a little bit off the point, but it's just a fascinating ideas question. Do you think that what John Rawls did was work out a political philosophy that he thought was ideal that ended in a justification for the liberal welfare state? Or do you think that what John Rawls did was work backwards from a welfare state that he liked and found what he considered to be a firmer philosophical underpinning for it? He always did not like the characterization that he had gone and created a ex post facto philosophical justification for a political regime that was happening. And in fact, late in his life, he went in a direction of a, a governance model that he calls property-owning democracy that is a little weird and not very much like actual countries that, that we see. But I think this is the kind of case where like what somebody says about their own work is less valuable than what is actually on there. And his original book, Theory of Justice, was published in the early 70s. He was clearly working on it throughout the 1960s, which was the high watermark of great society, liberalism in the United States, welfare state programs. Like any book, it does not address everything you might care about. It says nothing about protecting the environment, for example. It says nothing about disability rights. It says nothing about feminism. But it does have a couple of chapters about civil disobedience and like when and why it is justified. Which I think just goes to show like what was on his mind right. was the civil rights movement, Kennedy Johnson era liberalism, and what was valid in it and, and why. History bears that out, even if it's not the official nature of the project. But anyway, what, what, what Raw says is that for big philosophical reasons, but that if you're going to have a social system that ends up with people being unequally treated by the outcomes, there has to be a justification for that inequality. And the justification has to be something that could be accepted in principle by everyone who is there, including the people who get the short end of the stick. And so he, he articulates this idea that's called the difference principle, that inequality is okay insofar as it benefits the least well-off people in society. So I think the, the classic example is that, you know, it's okay to pay surgeons high salaries because that means people will bother to get the training and will do the work and they save lots of lives and that's good. I think in a general sense, most people think that if you had no inequality at all, it would be difficult to have a functioning economy and, and growth. So that's a big philosophical argument about inequality. And to me, I mean, what's interesting about both the utilitarian and the, the Rawlsian egalitarian principles is that neither of those ideas actually say that inequality per se is a bad thing. They all say that a society might look at becoming less unequal in order to benefit 
actual human beings in there. But they also all say that a country like the United States, which has a very high level of inequality, is still a better, juster, fairer society than a place like Portugal, which has less inequality but is substantially poorer than the United States, such that poor Portuguese people are worse off than, than poor American people. Now, you can look at countries and people sometimes point to them, Denmark, Sweden, where the lowest income people are better off than, than they are in the United States. And we certainly could do things in the United States to reduce inequality and, and lift up the, the lowest wage people here. But it's not true as a general matter that the level of inequality in a society is the main determinant of how well off its poorest citizens are. And none of the sort of big philosophical ideas that, that I'm familiar with say that that's a problem. And also, I don't think, like when Barack Obama says that inequality is the defining challenge of our generation, I don't think he actually means that if he could make the American economy look more like Peru, you know, right. he would go do it, right? But that is like the literal words seem to mean that. That if you could make America as a whole much poorer, but also much more equal, that he would go do that. But I also think something in there and in the way both of these philosophical approaches to the issue are structured is interesting in its telling, in that you mentioned a couple minutes ago, and it's something that I had picked up on and asked you about, that Rawls's work is typically thought of not as a justification for different abstract levels of inequality, but as a justification for the welfare state. The reason that inequality plays a factor there is because you might want to move money into other purposes. And similarly, the, the utilitarian argument is also about what would you do with that money? What can you do with that right. money? It was not the case that in the 50s, in the 30s, in the 40s, in the 60s, in the 70s, in the 80s, even to some degree in the 90s, inequality itself was often considered a major issue. That wasn't a, a major thing that people talked about in left of center, even right of center American economic life. Inequality, it came up. It was something that people measured and tracked a little bit. It's something that people talked about. There's always been concerns about disparities in wealth. But it is a much more recent development in particularly, I think, liberal thinking that inequality per se is a problem. And you have a lot of rhetoric now that what you want to do is almost irrespective of what you are doing with the money. You want to bring down levels of inequality. Yeah. I mean, I, and I think that that is a relatively sort of new trend. And of course, the actual level of inequality used to be much lower. So there was, Although not always. It was very high before the Depression, yes. for instance. But I mean, in the sort of mid to late 20th century, yeah. there was less inequality than there is now. And, and you also see this in, in thinkers on the right, that if you read Milton Friedman, in a number of occasions in his sort of older works from, from the 60s and 70s, he just kind of waves off distributional concerns and like says you don't really need to pay attention to them. And I don't think he's being like hide the ball disingenuous about that. I mean, he is operating in a landscape where the gap between rich and poor obviously was meaningful. People would have rather been millionaires in the 70s than paupers and, and there were millionaires, but it was not a big salient aspect of American life and not something that people thought an enormous amount about. And it's also why, like, so Lyndon Johnson talks about a war on poverty, right? Not about a, a war on inequality. Right. Of course, there was a redistributive 
element to that, a, a substantial one. Tax money was flowing from rich people to poor people. But the idea that he had was that it was a shame that in a country that was at the time the richest country on the planet, that there were people living in really, really abysmal conditions. It wasn't about the idea that individual Americans were so wealthy, that it was appalling. It was that actually the average was so high. And it was appalling that people were in these conditions. And I think stark inequality was seen as like, a, you know, a problem for other places. In Latin America, you would often have these like landowner plantation dominated economies. And the United States was just not that kind of place. And so what has happened in, in recent years is that the inequality itself has become the problem. In, in the rhetoric, when you hear things like Barack Obama saying that inequality is the defining issue of our time, what has, I think, subtly but really importantly changed in the liberal view of the economy and the liberal view of economic justice is it the distributional question is important separate from the question of are the poor doing okay? Separate from the question is, is the middle class doing okay? That at least if you take the rhetoric at face value, you could have a world where we tripled everybody's income. And that would in some – I mean obviously in many respects that would be a good thing, but in some respects it would be a bad thing because it would make the gap between the, the rich and the poor yawn wider. And within that argument, which of, as you say has come up because objectively from the data we have, the scope of inequality has just widened quite a bit in, in recent decades. But what you have then I think is a bit of a search, which happens a lot in American politics for – you have this issue, inequality, where it feels to people like something is really wrong. They, they look at that and they don't like it. And then the search kind of begins for why is it wrong? And there are some things where I think the problems being pointed out are problems are of inequality that are based around inequality. And some things where I think that inequalities become a way for people to talk about other problems that have not developed such political salience yet. And I actually think this is one of the, the difficulties I have with the conversation where I think it often confuses and in some cases actually makes more difficult issues that need to be faced head on. So one reason people get very upset about inequality is the sort of raw distribution of economic wealth. But often if you really press them, they're, they're very upset about median wages stagnating or poverty being so persistent. And in some cases, it's not, I don't think it's been increasing lately, but for some time after the recession it was. You can imagine ways where median wages would increase again or poverty would decrease, but the top 1% would keep pulling further away. Then there's a set of arguments that I think are, are in some ways more significant for inequality qua inequality, which are around political power and the ways in which a country in which the top 1% are aggregating more and more and more of the wealth is a country where they are going to have more and more and more political power to orient the economy and orient public policy around their interests. And so that becomes a way that inequality is both is on the one hand self-perpetuating, but on the other hand is a problem because it's going to lead to public policy that takes wealth that otherwise would go to the middle class and, and, and the poor and brings it up to the top 1%. I do think that the sort of median income question is crucial here. I think that if you go back to the political rhetoric of the 1990s, when that was a time when the poverty rate was falling quite rapidly. Median incomes were growing, not as quickly as poverty was falling, but at a decent clip. And the rich were also getting richer, largely through, through stock market accumulation. But, you know, it was just like good times. And at that time, there were people who said, 
oh, no, 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 things are way worse than they look because inequality is exploding out of control. But that was a kind of a left-wing crank position. It was not the mainstream view of left-of-center people. I, I just want to be clear about how you're using crank here because I don't. I think it might come off differently than, than when we talked about it isn't that the view is necessarily wrong or crazy, just that the people who were arguing that view were not taken seriously it was a, by the it mainstream. Was a, it was a... It was a marginal viewpoint. Right, yes. You would not have heard and you did not hear Al Gore in 2000 saying, we've done a lot of good things in the economy, but it's really bad that the Gini coefficient has risen. Right. He talked about gaps in health insurance, the need to regulate tobacco, you know, blah, 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 blah. But that was an economic record that mainstream Democrats were very comfortable claiming credit for. And there, there was a, a consensus in the Democratic Party that I think has since really broken down. But at that time, that the great compromise or, or, or the great advance, depending on who you talk to, that neoliberalism had made was to understand that if you really, really, really put the government in service of the market, that you can make people richer and then you could take some of that money from the rich. In addition to increasing wages down at the bottom, you could also take some of that money from the rich and put it back into the social safety net, create things like the children's health insurance program. Even if there was going to be more inequality, there was also a rising tide lifts all boats. And then right. something that happens after that period is the rich keep getting richer, but the it only begins to lift the yachts. You don't see median wages going up. You don't see poverty improving. It, it just sort of gets worse at the bottom and more and more and more of the gains of, of reasonably good economies just flow to the top. Exactly. And, and that's when you start seeing mainstream Democrats embracing inequality as an issue more. And I think it's never been entirely clear if what they are saying is that they were wrong in the 90s to say that that was an acceptable outcome and they just sort of like would like that back or if they're saying that they just don't believe it's possible. Because one thing you could say is that in principle, it would be fine to increase middle class incomes by any means possible. But the only available means is more redistribution. Another idea would be to say, look, there's like three or four different things we could do, but it's really important to do redistribution because inequality is the predominant challenge of our time. And I think there's just enormous sort of ambiguity around that because we have seen slow growth and rising inequality over the past 15 years. So it's been sort of very convenient. It's gone together. I do notice that over the course of 2015, there was job growth in the United States. There was wage growth in the United States. It wasn't spectacular wage growth, but it was positive. And also the stock market did quite poorly in 2015. So that was a year in which the uh, gap between rich and, rich and the middle class narrowed. I did not really see people celebrating that. Because the reality is, is it was a year of weak wage growth and saying, well, OK, your pay only went up 1%, but at least rich people lost 3% in the stock market. is like nobody is consoled by that. What people really care about is the idea of a sort of broadly shared increase in living standards, not actually what's happening in the, the income distribution. To an extent, I don't want to say everyone's lying. So I think that there are a couple of places where when I try to think about the question of what are the reasons to care about inequality just around the inequality question, not about around something else you could otherwise address directly? I, I kind of come up with a couple of them. One, and this is a tricky question to adjudicate, and I've asked it of a lot of economists and gotten a lot of different answers, is the degree to which distribution is a zero-sum game. 
is a degree to which the top 1% running away with income gains is part of the reason that the median American worker or the American worker at the 10th percentile has seen their wages stagnate so badly. And there are certain mechanisms that do appear to be leading to inequality that are around this. So an example would be the fact that we more or less gutted unions, certainly private sector unions, and we lowered high marginal tax rates and made some changes around corporate boards and other things. It made it much easier and also much more lucrative for CEOs and, and heads of industry to leverage their negotiating power for much bigger compensation packages. And that's one reason you see the differential between worker and CEO pay, CEO and worker pay, drive up so, so, so much in, in recent decades. But other economists argue that there might be some effects like that on the margin. But for the most part, these are separate trends. If you look in the data, you see them taking off it at separate times. As I remember this, median wages really begin to stagnate in the 70s, whereas top 1% pay really begins to go up in the, in the mid-80s. Another thing that can be looked at here is that political power issue. Now, I tend to think that around the political power, you want to be addressing campaign finance reform more directly. That, that That's sort of the more obvious. If you're worried about the effect of money in politics, then do something about whether money can come into politics. The, the rejoinder people offer to that is, well, in an era of super high inequality, you're not able to do anything about the money coming into politics because super rich people who have a lot of power will block it. I feel like that ends up being a bit of a turtles all the way down argument because, well, then by the same token, how are you going right, to use impossible. policy to change inequality? But but it's a I think it's a an argument worth taking seriously. There's no equilibrium. Even if you did highly strengthen the, the campaign finance reform system and get rid of Citizens United and do public financing and do small donor matching and all the other things you might do, that you would still end up, if you didn't, if you then did nothing about distribution of, of income in this country, you would still end up with a world where even if because of some momentary coalition of political power, you would pass those laws, they would just get chipped away over 15, 20, 25 years. If there's no stable distribution of political power in, in a country that is that unequal. But then I think there are a lot of places where it would be better to actually define the thing you're worried about and attack that thing. A median wage stagnation, I think, is a... But there are others too. So I guess, where do you come down on that? I mean, how much do you worry about inequality qua inequality? And I don't mean here in terms of, would you accept falling wages for everyone if they fell for the rich faster? But as one priority among many, where does inequality rank for you? I, I think that it is not a great idea to have adopted this entire inequality focus. I think that it gets you into a lot of thorny, difficult measurement issues that becomes a little bit of a sort of a conceptual cul-de-sac. And that really, it seems to me that what is animating people is slow pace of increase in living standards for average people. I do think it's true that addressing that probably requires you to alter the actual balance of power in sort of enterprises and, and in the economy in a way that would have a leveling impact, right? That right now what happens is that top managers and large shareholders have too much overall influence over what is done with economic resources in the United States. What they want to do is pocket the resources. And I think that that both takes money out of people's pockets and and also prevents some of the kind of investment that, that would spur growth. But that focusing on the inequality part, I mean, making it sound as if confiscating Bill Gates's money and setting dumpsters full of it on fire would be constructive, or making it seem as if the fact that founders of 
very successful companies have enormous amounts of paper wealth is the reason medium wages have slowed, right? I mean, that's, I think, so clearly wrong, right? That like Mark Zuckerberg's personal fortune has not come out of the pockets of average people working in the food service industry. Like, There's no way to make that connection. But when you think about inequality, those are the, mo- the most salient examples are like the very richest people in the world who tend to be corporate founders and or their children. It's much more sensible to focus on the question of how are median people doing? And then to focus on the intergenerational transfer of wealth, which I think there's traditionally been a lot of concern about in the United States for pretty obvious reasons. And there's been a real dismantling of, of state taxes. That's much more a, a fairness concern than about inequality per se. I mean, we don't like the idea of a sort of permanent aristocracy of inherited wealth, right? That that is problematic on its own terms. And that also stagnating incomes for middle class people is problematic on its own terms. Those two things do not cause each other. And those two things are not directly related to the Gini coefficient either. We, we should probably stop here for a minute and define the, the Gini coefficient. Well, it's, it's easy. It's the ratio of the area above the Lorenz curve to the area below it. So, you know, that makes it really simple and, and easy to understand. No, it's so, very so, intuitive. So, <laughs> so, <laughs> sure. so the, the, the Gini coefficient, this is the standard way that unequal distribution of economic resources is defined. And it's a bit difficult to get your mind around. But it's sort of like, imagine drawing a picture where each person is like, higher based on they earn more money, right? And then you put them in order. So the person who owns the most is all the way on the right. And then the next person is next to him. The next person is next to him, right? So then you would have, you can imagine like a square, right? And then there's a line that goes on top of everybody's heads. And the Gini coefficient is the ratio between what's in the in the blank space, what's above the line, and what's below the line. So if you have a perfectly equal distribution of income, it's 50-50. And if it gets skewed, the, the ratio goes higher. And it's a it's like an abstract number, but it's a simple way to summarize the distribution of income across and, the And economy. in that white space is income, right? But on both sides of that is income, and the, just the question is, where is it? Yeah, yeah, right. yeah, exactly. So I think one reason that it's hard to talk about inequality in a rigorous way in the context of a political campaign is that measuring it and explaining what you're measuring is really, really not friendly to, to a stump speech. To be, to be fair, though, I think that one way people think about inequality, and this is another place where I think it has actually gotten a little bit confusing because they're using a not that precise idea tied to a not that precise measurement. But the one I really hear people talk about is top 1% share of income. Yes. And then you get into a different argument about whether you should be doing income or wealth, where I kind of come down on the you should be looking at wealth side of things. But but even so, I think that one reason this is like slightly even more complicated and particularly leads to more confusing policies is that you could have policies that would address the Gini coefficient, but that would actually be aimed at like the 83rd to 92nd percentile of the income distribution. But because politicians are thinking about top 1%, sometimes top 0.1%, uh, income, the policies are much more narrowly targeted. Certainly the rhetoric of 1% versus 99% has been very powerful, is very comprehensible to people, like really goes and means something. There's an interesting question as to whether people in the second 
you know, whatever that is, the 98th percentile? Right. Do they actually perceive themselves as to be comrades in arms with the very poor in terms of shaping economic policy? I'm like a little – you're talking there about people making like two hundred fifty, three hundred thousand dollars $300,000 a year. And I, I'm a little skeptical that those people have a self-conception as like being on the – on the oppressed side of the economic divide, but you know, who knows? I don't know. So I, I've read some things from the, from, from people there, who make that are like there, there are a lot of whining. Yeah, there's a lot of whining. Low six figures. <laughs> so yeah, you know, something we will talk about is that there keep being bank shot theories, which is like, oh, well, we have empirical evidence that high levels of inequality hurt people's health, or we have evidence that high levels of inequality are bad for opportunity, right? So if those things are true. Uh, of course, that's a problem, right? I mean, public health hazards are bad, blah, blah, blah. But I think the way that that research agenda has proceeded is a, you know, a little unsound. There's been a certain amount of like, let's hunt around for something that is caused by inequality. And, and as you said, right, the, the political power thing seems like a, a fairly straightforward case and worth, I guess, keeping in mind as we design election rules and, and campaign seasons. But if truly your only worry were about the imbalance in the campaign finance system, I just don't think anyone would be sincerely motivated to completely overhaul the economy. The place I come down, which I think is related but but slightly different in, in a couple ways, is that inequality seems to me to be a signal of a lot of things that are going wrong. I can imagine a version of inequality that maybe wouldn't, but the one we have and, yeah. and the way in which we've reacted to it, I think inequality has become a shorthand for a lot of things and maybe we're not always super conceptually clear about, but are real problems. In that way, inequality is a byproduct of some things that I think we really should worry about. Particularly around the basket of concerns that lead to people worrying about inequality, I would prefer that the buzzword, that the rallying cry had become full employment. I think that a lot of the things that really concern me and that I think actually drive the particular kinds of inequality that worry me have to do with very low levels of worker power. There are, there are ways in which it has to do with unions. There are ways in which it has to do with Federal Reserve policy. There are ways in which it has to do with the demand side policy from Congress. I mean, there are all kinds of things that go into a full employment policy agenda. But I think that if we had that, we would be – I think inequality would close a bit. But even if it didn't, we would have addressed the forms of inequality that strike me as really right. toxic. But then the, the place that puts you is, OK, so maybe the case for inequality being – the issue is not that strong, but is there some reason to believe that inequality is such good politics as opposed to worrying about full employment, worrying about median wages, worrying about unemployment, worrying about things like that, that there is some highly instrumental case for foregrounding inequality, even if you're really using it to address these other things. That's somewhere where, one, I don't feel like I'm on super firm ground because you know I've, I've not won any elections in my life. But I am skeptical that inequality is some kind of special political winner, and I have not seen a lot of wins come out of it. Obviously, Bernie Sanders' campaign is doing excellently, but I think that he is focused much more on power and imbalances in power than mere imbalances in income, which I think has been a very smart move that he's made in framing his campaign. So I'm not persuaded, I think, by that argument either, that, yeah, inequality may be a little bit conceptually confused, but it's such a huge political winner that... That, that that should be the the play either. And I, I just I, I've not seen the election, the, the campaigns that would convince me of it. All right. Uh, so I think next we're going to talk about the actual campaign coming up. Uh, <laughs> after a, Really? Yeah. <laughs> right. It's going to be sponsor. exciting. 
This week's episode of The Weeds is sponsored by The Great Courses. We've been talking a lot about The Great Courses lately, and we're excited about their new Great Courses Plus video learning service. It gives you unlimited access to this huge library of The Great Courses lecture series in so many fascinating subjects. you got science, history, cooking, everything. Uh, so we really want you to try The Great Courses Plus. So they're giving our listeners a special chance to watch one of their popular courses, Understanding Investments, absolutely free. Understanding Investments is presented by award-winning professor of financial economics at Duke University, Connell Fulkenkamp. The course explains the fundamentals of investing for people who aren't familiar with the process, and it also covers areas that more experienced investors find beneficial. It's, it's super interesting. Uh, you know, you can learn a lot. You can benefit on the bottom line. And with Great Courses Plus, you can watch as many different lectures as you want, anytime, anywhere. So now the Great Courses Plus is offering our listeners a chance to stream hundreds of their courses, including Understanding Investments. It's a $215 value for free. You just go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash weeds. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash weeds. So we had a, an amazing week in the election campaign. We had a boring Tuesday in which no states voted. Pff, what a shitty Tuesday. It's boring Tuesday. What we've seen is some interesting and definitely weedsy developments in the campaign, which is that states have now started to actually select their delegates to the convention. We talk about candidates winning states, and sometimes we we get fine-grained and talk about how many delegates they've won. But then a separate phase of the process is when the actual human beings are selected. The rules for how that happens vary from place to place, but typically the answer is not okay, if Donald Trump wins seven delegates, that means he gets to pick seven people. And Ted Cruz has been cleaning up on the actual delegate selection in the handful of states that have done it and has been stocking delegates. So like Louisiana, where Trump, I think, won all the delegates, they're like basically all Cruz guys. He went to the Colorado state GOP convention and he got it stacked with Ted Cruz guys. So Trump is talking about how this is unfair I think common sense indicates that Trump is correct, but also— I want to stop us here because I think it's important to explain what this means and what it doesn't mean. This doesn't mean that on the first ballot at the GOP convention, the Ted Cruz guys who are Louisiana's delegates will vote for Ted Cruz. They won't. They're going to vote for Donald Trump. Like they're they're to some degree more or less bound to do that. The rules say that they have to vote for Donald Trump. probably is going to happen or certainly potentially may happen is if Donald Trump does not get a majority of delegates before the convention, what's going to happen is they're going to have a first ballot vote and Donald Trump will get whatever, 42 percent of the delegates. And after that, there actually aren't very binding instructions about what those delegates do. At that point, those delegates can sort of do whatever they want. And the idea is that none of them like Donald Trump. And they're all going to go to Ted Cruz. Right. And this is the difference between what we're looking at in 2016 and like the brokered conventions of yore. Because what would happen back then when when Al Smith came to the 1924 convention without enough delegates to win the nomination, he came with pro-Smith delegates from Eastern Democratic Party machines that were – They were loyal to Smith and they were loyal to the same bosses that Smith was loyal to. Right. So, you know, he didn't win on the first ballot and they were still fighting for him on the second, third, fourth. And ultimately, why you would say the convention was brokered is that these different people had delegates who were loyal to them and they made deals. Or – to some degree, these different bosses. It didn't have to be Al Smith. It could be, as as you kind of said – you would have machine bosses who would control 
X amount of the delegates of a state, the machine boss wasn't on the ballot, but the machine boss would be in the room making the exactly. helping to make the deal. And so what we're seeing is that we now have pledge delegates. So they they have to vote according to the rules for Trump or in some cases Cruz or Kasich. But then there's the question of where do their real loyalties actually lie? And now these are not delegates who are controlled by Ted Cruz in a machine sense because Ted Cruz doesn't have patronage jobs to hand out, right? He's not right. going to He's not like, making them postal offices. Yeah, he's, he's not going to get your sister fired if, if you don't do what he says. But they are people who... Ted Cruz's field teams in these different states believe to be like on their side. And so if Ted Cruz, in theory, you could have a majority of the delegates personally favor Cruz. Trump has like 45 percent pledged. So on the first ballot, they go for Trump. Cruz gets 30, whatever. We go to the second ballot, then everyone votes for Ted Cruz. and, And that's all she wrote. The other possibility is that Nobody will win on the second ballot either, but then we will see if Cruz really retains the loyalty of those people to the extent that he can be like a big negotiating player and, you know, either win the nomination for himself by making concessions to other people or swing it one way or the other. And I think that's a little untested. I mean, there's been some good reporting about this, these events, uh, for a lot of it from, from the Washington Post, but... We just don't have the kind of politics anymore where I think we really, really know to what extent these Cruz delegates are like hardcore Ted Cruz loyalists. And I want to note two things on on both sides of this. One is that it is the case now – this has come up on the weeds before – Ted Cruz has just flat out out out-organized the rest of the Republican field. He has just run a more – professional, savvy, effective, far-sighted campaign. Marco Rubio was not running a strong delegate accrual strategy. So one thing I just think we should just say as a conceptual point is Ted Cruz is really showing that he's just a little bit ahead of the others in this. And it's one reason I think that gives me, separate from the question of how many delegates he has or whatever, a little bit more confidence that he would prevail is just that I think a lot of people are going to be caught without a plan. Right. And Ted Cruz is not going to be caught without a plan. But but the other point is that, as you say, this has not happened for a long time or in the contemporary circumstances of delegate selection and, and convention rules. And as such, people don't really know how to handle it. Right. Like there were a lot of people before who were experienced at how to broker a convention. Right. There were norms of how you broker a convention. It was clear who you call. It was clear how the delegates got information from people. And now it's not. Right. So in terms of just like what you said a minute ago, where there is this idea that Ted Cruz is going to end up in a room with someone and he's going to either be making concessions or making deals, the question of who is in that room is really uncertain now. I mean, it could be John Kasich. It could be Donald Trump. So, I mean, one idea is it's just the candidates, but my guess is they're going to be, I mean, Donald Trump says he's a deal maker, so maybe he's happy to be in that room making a deal. But I'm I'm a little skeptical that he will see this as an, as an above the board thing to discuss, but he might. But the other option is there are not other players in the Republican Party who it's clear will have a lot of influence. And so it isn't clear who is the leverage to make deals, right? If Paul Ryan comes out, it really isn't clear just for all. I mean, Paul Ryan has now said that he will not be the candidate, that he thinks it should be somebody who ran. But even if Paul Ryan did come out, 
that talk has been talk that is coming from Washington. That talk has been talk coming from the establishment that wants to see Paul Ryan chosen because it seems like it will finally save them from this hellish year and the specter of Ted Cruz and Donald Trump. But in fact, it was never obvious that if Paul Ryan walked out and said, "Okay, I will serve as your candidate, that he would actually get those delegates. Well, this is where I think there's been a really shocking organizational failure. I think there's been a lot of media snark about Donald Trump's sort of ineptitude at this. But I think from the way... Trump sees it. Trump's path to victory is to secure a majority of pledged delegates. It doesn't matter who selects the delegates if he gets a majority. They have to give it to him on the first ballot. Trump has limited resources, limited access to party institutions, movement institutions. So he's focused on, you know, his Twitter account, his rallies, trying to win New York, trying to win California, trying to get it. It's unfortunate for him that Cruz is poaching these delegations, but, you know, he'll live with it and try his best. The people who are really losing here, I think, are the Republican Party elected officials from these states. What you might think would be happening here is that Cruz and Trump are out there as the last men standing, running in the primaries, getting votes. But regardless of who wins the state, the governor or the senators or ideally both of them working together, are making sure that that state's delegation is packed with people who they know and they trust and who respect them so that in the event that nobody has a majority, you can go broker the convention, right? And the answer to the question of who are the brokers is it's not clear who would be the broker for New York State Republicans because that's a not really an existing state party. But, you know, it should be that that the Republican Party elected officials from all these southern states ultimately control the delegations. And that's how you would have a hope for it could be a Paul Ryan, it could be a Mitt Romney, for the party regulars would be to say that the, the strength of regulars traditionally has been that that's exactly who gets to go be a delegate. But they haven't done it. There's been a lot of talk from Republican elected officials about problems with Donald Trump. There's been a lot of seemingly meetings with billionaires on offshore resorts where they talk about ad campaigns. But they did not at least we have not yet seen a state where they have done the work to say, okay, this is a rock solid packed with friends, family, close supporters, staffers of the governor. And they're going to come in, they're going to do what they have to do on the first ballot. And then if it doesn't come to that, the governor is going to go in the room and he's going to speak for them all. And this speaks to a way in which the Republican Party as an institution, a sort of loose collected institution, ha- has failed, has failed to some degree in its role as a party. You're talking here about individual power brokers in the Republican Party, but another version of this that very much could have happened. There's been a lot of talk about how the Republican Party didn't decide. Right. Somebody that didn't like Trump, it did not give a large number of elected official endorsements to any particular candidate before Iowa. It has not united behind any candidate. It's not really tried to push other candidates out. It has been simultaneously terrified and paralyzed. But something that could have been happening in the background, even of a Republican Party being unwilling to intervene more aggressively in the the election, or at least unable to come up with one candidate they all could support, is the Republican Party or sort of tribunes of the Republican Party could have been 
really keep an eye on this process and making sure, as you put it, it's party regulars, right? One version of that is the governor's cronies, but another version of that is the Republican state committee's loyal foot soldiers, right? right who are loyal, who are involved in Republican state committee efforts. And so in the end are going to take some direction from elite Republicans, not just like, will you give me what I want in Missouri, but what is best for the party? And they did not do that either. And so the Republican Party didn't just not decide. It also didn't organize. It also hasn't been planning. I mean, it just, there is nothing you can look at this year and say, well, at least Brian's previous Republican Party did a good job on that. If you are part of the Republican establishment, and, and maybe this is because Priebus was afraid of being seen and didn't want the responsibility of trying to broker out a convention, right? I mean, it's entirely possible that what this was considered, and they said, my God, can you imagine the backlash if it seemed to be us who did that? On some level, I think people are looking at the Ted Cruz thing, and even though Donald Trump is upset, I think a lot of the reaction people are having is, well, that's pretty clever of Ted Cruz. Like, this is part of campaigning for president. He's showing he's good at campaigning for president. It's possible the Republican Party looked at this and said, if we do it, it will just look like we're stealing the whole thing. We don't want that responsibility. Better to let it be a chaotic thing that ends with who knows what than to make it be a chaotic thing that ends with everybody being angry at us. But even so, that is just another way in which the party was too afraid to step forward and take proactive steps to avert what could be a total disaster for them at the campaign. Uh, one, one thing I'll just say it, to close that out is that you and I have talked before, I think we've talked before on the show, about how Ted Cruz is a very weak general election candidate. But the only thing that can make Ted Cruz a weaker general election candidate than his beliefs and record and, and, and the things he said, which are pretty unusual even for a Republican, is that he also took the nomination from Donald Trump and so split off from that kind of that side of the party is getting called Lion Ted all the time by Trump on Twitter. I mean, for Ted Cruz to go in with a split Republican party is just like an unimaginable disaster for Republicans, I think. I think we should say that about about all these scenarios. There's a question of like what's in the rules and like what is really comprehensible. And it does always seem to me that as long as Trump is ahead in votes and delegates and polling, that it's just a hard sell to say you're going to like swipe it from him. Right. I mean, you could, but it's so ugly. I think this is a good time to move and talk about our white paper of the week, which I'm very excited about. Absolutely. So this week, there was a study released in the Journal of the American Medical Association. And this study is done by Raj Chetty, who's one of the leading economists, leading economists right now, but also is the leading economist, I think, on doing new sort of data set based experiments, particularly around inequality and social mobility. A lot of other well-known economists on the team, David Cutler is one of them at Harvard. This study is about health inequality. And its findings are really, really, really striking. Its findings are, among other things, that people in men in the top 1% of the income distribution live 15 years longer than men in the bottom 1% of the income distribution. It finds that there are parts of the country where the average life expectancy for low-income Americans puts them around Sudan or Pakistan levels. It finds that the gap in life expectancy and longevity between the rich and the poor is growing substantially. I think for women, there's been a gain of about 2.9 years between 2001 and 2014. For rich women, a gain of 2.9 years. And for poor women, a gain of 0.04 years. These are really striking numbers. They're coming from the best data set we have on this. And the other thing about this data set that is really striking is it goes through and pretty systematically 
disproves a lot of the mechanisms, the sort of straightforward inequality mechanisms that would seem like what would naturally follow from worrying about inequality. So one thing you might imagine is the income contributor here is that poor people can't afford health insurance or they can't afford good medical care. And they show that health insurance and getting on Medicare and even medical and hospital quality in that area does not seem to predict any of this. Uh, Another thing you might think is that poor people live in more dangerous or more toxic environments or breathing in more pollution or they don't have access to, to groceries with fresh food. So the way they test this, which I think is pretty clever, is they look at what happens when you have more income segregation. So in theory, if that's the problem, then places where poor people and rich people live in a more intermixed way would not have this. But in fact, they find that longevity is actually better for the poor a little bit when they are actually more economically segregated. And they sort of go through like this. They're just a bunch of things that you think might be the causal mechanism and just do not appear to be. And so then you end up in this new place where the only thing that they find that is, I think, somewhat hopeful or implies something different and unusual going on is that there are a couple of cities, a number of cities, but particularly big blue cities. Six of the 10 are cities where the poor live the longest are in California that seem to be doing a really good job cutting this. So you have a bunch of cities where in the difference between how long the poor in San Francisco and the poor in Detroit live is equivalent to if San Francisco just cured cancer, like just completely eliminated cancer, which I think is an amazing, amazing stat. And this has kind of hit a little bit like a bomb, in part because it disproves a lot of things people thought before, but also because it really shows how stark these disparities are in the country. And I think it raises a lot of really interesting spaces for inquiry. But one of the really interesting ones is that it is so geographically different. It is so different metro area to metro area that it actually does allow you to ask this question of, well, what are some places doing right and some places are doing wrong? They've tried to control for race and other things. These things can be very hard to control for. But nevertheless, like uh, it is it is very striking and I think speaks to the need to be thinking about a different set of policies than we usually are when we talk about these questions. Yeah. I mean, it seems like most sort of clearly it looks like these are states that have more draconian anti-smoking rules. And also, though, just places that have more, I don't know quite what to say it, but like health-conscious affluent yuppies are denser on the ground, seems to have a kind of a, a spillover effect onto onto lower-income residents of, of these kinds of areas. You know, one thing that I'm always sort of uncertain about when these things come down is what is the actual state of the conventional wisdom? Like, I saw some people looking at this study result and saying, oh, like the big thing this shows is that access to health care is not the main driver of, of health outcomes in the United States. I thought that was something that was already very, very well established. There, there's a fair amount of argument about that. I mean, you use some experimental evidence that suggests that it would matter more. I mean, for instance, we know that people with health insurance tend to get more blood pressure medication. Right. You know, blood pressure medication actually tends to help. And so you have things that, that work through those causal pathways. And you have some a fair amount of observational data showing that health insurance does increase life expectancy, though you also have some experimental data showing that it doesn't. Right. I so, mean, I mean, I, this stuff, it, it's, a, it's a very live debate. Okay. I, I, I just, I had always been under the impression that it was already sort of conventional wisdom that lifestyle factors are the predominant driver of, of health disparities, right? That the, the most expensive healthcare treatments tend to be either not that effective or else becoming in end-of-life scenarios where the potential gains are, are not that 
not that big. And in the United States, no matter what your insurance status, right, if you get hit by a car, we don't, in fact, let people just die right. in the streets of easily preventable injuries. And I do think it's important for people to understand that, right, that like when they say that they don't find that access to health care is a big driver of this, they're operating with a baseline where the minimum amount of access to health care is not no access to health care. It would be interesting to know, hypothetically, what would happen if we actually did just turn away indigent patients from any kind of healthcare needs. My suspicion is that a lot of them would die, but we don't do that. To me, though, an important part of this paper that was not really emphasized in a lot of the journalism about it is the fact that they control for race and ethnicity. That's a fairly standard demographic control to put into things, and I think it's it's good to do that. Sometimes you can draw a map of the United States and some phenomenon is here, and you're like, whoa, what is that crazy arc running from eastern Texas up through uh, into New York? And oftentimes you're seeing counties that have large African-American populations also have some other phenomenon that, that correlates heavily with race. So that's good. But One thing that happens when you control for race is that we know that race has a big impact on life expectancy, and we don't know why that is. So I think it's important to keep it in mind when we control because usually the purpose of throwing statistical controls into a regression is that you want to avoid coming out with an explanation that you already know. If you're trying to study human heights impact on things— you don't want your result to just be showing you that men are taller than women. Right. Right. So you might want to control for gender, right? Because we know why men are taller than women. It's very, very well understood. Not well understood at all is why Latinos have longer life expectancy than, than non-Hispanic white people. And, and that's true without controlling for income, which is striking because the Hispanic population is very, very poor. So when you read a write-up of this study that says life expectancy in, for the poor in San Antonio is below average, you might be inclined to believe that a poor person in San Antonio has a below average life expectancy, but that's almost certainly not the case. San Antonio is a very heavily Latino city. Uh, the low-income population in San Antonio is very, very disproportionately Latino, and by I have not crunched the numbers. I'm, I'm quite certain that it's in fact, above average. They're saying that it's below average when you control for ethnicity. But that's that's different from but, a, a sort of a, a raw outcome. But if you're trying to isolate the effect of income, which is what they're trying to right. do, I, I think a lot about the point you make on this a lot, which is you don't want in controlling fear variables to accidentally control the thing you're measuring. You've made this point about the wage gap right. a lot, which is oftentimes you'll see studies that are about the the male-female wage gap, and let's say, well, when you control for hours worked, yeah, yeah, yeah. what kind of jobs you choose, et cetera, et cetera, it goes away. And you, the point you've made and, and that, that I've thought about a lot is that when you do that, you are controlling away the thing that you're actually trying to f- measure and figure out. That's the way the wage gap works. But I don't see how that is doing that here. No, no. I mean, I, I think it's an appropriate control. I just think it's important to foreground the fact that you have done it. Right. Because I, I think particularly because the Hispanic paradox is itself not well understood, right? So one thing that you might have thought was that, well, the reason Latinos have longer life expectancy is that they disproportionately live in warm weather areas in the United States, which is true. So maybe they like go outside more, maybe they spend more time at the swimming pool and they're in better physical condition. So one thing this study shows is that that's not true, right? That there are geographical disparities when you control for race, which is itself an interesting finding. But I I just think it's important when you are 
investigating mystery is when one of the things you control for is itself a black box that you don't understand. That's a fair point. To to accurately describe what what you're saying, right? If there was some well-known, universally agreed upon reason why Latinos have longer life expectancy than white people, then saying, well, of course, we're controlling for that, you know, would be great. But it's like we have two mysteries, right? On the one hand, we don't know why San Francisco, when you control for ethnicity, has a longer life expectancy than San Antonio. On the other hand, we also don't know why low-income Latinos live longer than low-income African-Americans. So there's like two different mysterious things bopping around in the low-income population. And we're seeing that one way or another, it's not easily explicable by health insurance policies, you know, which is good to know, right? But we're, we're particularly when you're saying lifestyle type stuff is relevant, right? So one transmission factor for that could be like local environmental factors. I mean, people are influenced by what they see on the street, but also like discrete cultural communities may just have different like habits and, and mores and, and values, which is also relevant. So one thing I was thinking about here, I, I was actually, when I was reading this today, thinking about the same Hispanic paradox questions. And that was one reason I really noted that six of the 10 cities that had the best outcomes here were in California, because right. California is very, very large Hispanic populations, obviously. But there are a couple things in here that, that struck me. So so one thing that was going on in the study, where when they say, like, why might these cities be doing better? They actually say, maybe these cities have bigger immigrant populations. Yeah. And the reason that struck me as interesting was that they had also had this finding about economic segregation actually being a positive thing. Right. And that might be explained to some degree by immigrant communities that have very high level of social supports, very high level of social cohesion, and just are able to have an internal set of dynamics that maybe their their just raw incomes wouldn't predict. Except for the fact that when they looked at social cohesion, when they looked at religiousness, when they looked at social capital, which are the mechanisms certainly that I had thought that kind of thing would operate through, they didn't find an effect or if any, they, they just that, – that wasn't there. So that to me was interesting at, at the very least in suggesting that whatever the effect is in Hispanic communities that is doing this, it's not – that there's very high level of social capital while there's more social, more social atomization in, in other areas. But I do want to back out a little bit because I think something that is interesting here, separate from the controls, and, and I agree with you that there are parts of this study that you can and, and I'm sure will be challenged. But one of the things that the study speaks to, which we might have actually talked about a little bit on the weeds before, there are incredibly, incredibly, incredibly strong correlations. And it's important. This is a observational study. It's not an experimental one. But there are incredibly strong correlations between smoking, between obesity, between health behaviors and low-income mortality in ways that we did not find for health insurance, for Medicare, for a bunch of other things. And that implies two things. One is that if we want to think about how to make people live longer and healthier, we probably need to be thinking more about direct health interventions. But two, most direct health interventions like that, they happen actually at the state and much more to the point, the local level. So again, another reason I thought was interesting uh, that so many California areas were on there is California has been a pretty aggressive state, particularly around smoking bans. New York, which also did, New York City, which also did really well, has been very aggressive around trans fats, also has a smoking ban, et cetera. And one kind of nice thing here is that 
state and, again, particularly local politics, they're somewhat less polarized. They're smaller, so people can have more of an effect. I think if you think about the amount of attention and energy that goes into federal health policy with the idea that we're going to make people healthier, particularly now in the post-Obamacare era where you have a baseline of most people have or could have health insurance, I think that you would almost, I think, now want to see as a, as a rational change, of course, like people really thinking about what can you do to encourage healthier behaviors at the less polarized and on less, some less polarized issues uh, at the state and local level. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I always do think about this sort of like the two faces of health and health care policy, right? And you even, you saw it, I mean, I remember early in, in the Obamacare world, there was a House bill and a Senate bill. And the House bill was called the Healthy Americans Act. And the Senate bill was called the Affordable Care and Patient Protection I Act. I, I think Healthy Americans Act was wide invented. Oh, it was? It was wide invented. Okay, yeah. sorry. At any rate, it, it did not, in fact, indicate the divide in, in the policy approaches. But they were like, Actually, two different ideas. One idea is we need a law that is going to make people healthier. Another idea is we need a law that's going to make health care affordable and protect patients' interests in the healthcare care mm -hmm. system. Those two things have a connection to each other. If you don't get sick, you probably don't need health care. And if you are sick, getting health care might make you healthier. But it's a very loose connection, right? I mean, that's what you see in this study. That's what you see in a, in a lot of studies, right? That, like, being healthy is largely about doing healthy stuff outside of the doctor's office. Eating nutritious food, not smoking, not drinking too much, having some physical activity in your life. Even in terms of, like, catastrophic things, right? Like, so a lot of people die in car accidents, right, if you, if you don't drive a lot, you're good, right? A lot of people, if you work as a professional logger, you are very likely to have a saw kill you. And those are like the big, gross drivers of health. And then there's like health care, which takes up an incredible amount of money, has maybe some impact on, on people's health, but is just like clearly not a main driver. And what we've had a lot of in the federal government is health care finance politics and to some extent like pharmaceutical regulation-y stuff. And we've had very little public health politics coming out of the federal government in part for political reasons and in part for sort of federalism type reasons. And that's what you really saw in New York under uh, Mayor Bloomberg in particular right. was public health which was about built more bike lanes. They, I don't know what the deal with the trans fat thing is, but they, they got rid of them. They really led the nation in like punitive anti-smoking rules. They tried to ban big sodas. Right, exactly. And, and if that kind of movement came to a, a state government where you have a broader set of powers, you know, you could imagine really cracking down on the availability of sugary sweetened drinks on uh, certain kinds of unhealthy prepared foods, um, doing much, much more on the transportation system to encourage people to move around. It's not like cigarettes could be made illegal, you know, I think would be a reasonable public health intervention. But all of that stuff, while much more targeted at the question of like how healthy are people, I don't think it quite gets at the thing that is like bugging people in health care policy normally, which is just that, you know, as Bernie Sanders says on the campaign trail, he says, like, he believes that health care is a right, not a privilege, right? Which is just the idea that 
some people think that if you have a legitimate medical problem, someone should just take care of it for you in, mm -hmm. in much the way that, I don't know, if like a burglar breaks into your house, you, you're not like haggling with the police. Right. And the question of whether the police sitting down with you like does anything is almost secondary, right? You're just like entitled to law enforcement services if people are committing crimes. And that's like the conceptual issue in, in healthcare. But I do wonder how cognizant people who push that line are of the limited health efficacy. You know, like I, I wish I could peer inside Bernie Sanders's head and see like what does what is he hoping to achieve with this agenda? But but to some degree I also think that's one reason that Sort of wherever you started on that, I think that post-Obamacare, it is certainly less salient than it was pre-Obamacare. Again, not perfect, not arguing right. that. But it is both the bar to doing anything because of how polarized the issue is, is so much higher and the objective need is somewhat lower. And so that would just, I think, flip, flip your – it should change your priorities a little bit. And then you go into a, a study like this and I do think though this stuff – the stuff that appears to me in the study, and, and, and we don't really know here. I think it's really important to say, we don't really know what's working here. We don't really right. know what is in the study working. This study has a lot of suggestive evidence in, in both directions, but it's just not experimental, right? We did not randomly take one city and then another city and just randomly put people into them and then randomly start making interventions in one of the two while the other served as control. So we don't have sort of the quality of data we'd like to have. But to your point about what emotionally moves people, I think that one, and I think it's well made, but I think one problem too is that there is not a very good language around this stuff. And it actually cuts in some weird directions. So, so let me give an example. When you talk about increasing health insurance subsidies for the poor, you're saying, okay, the poor are in a position where they can't buy health insurance, but they would like it. And so we are going to be a nice, good country and make sure they can afford it. That's just part of being, as Bernie Sanders says, like a decent rich, a decent nation at our level of wealth. When you start talking about these public health interventions, you're actually mixing, I think, some of the, the, the signals that people feel around it. You are saying that there are behaviors disproportionately concentrated in low-income communities like smoking. And what you are going to do is punitively change that. You are going to either make it illegal to smoke inside a restaurant. You're going to increase cigarette or alcohol taxes. You're, you're going to do all kinds of things that are not the folks you want to help have a need and a desire, and you're going to fulfill that desire. It is you're going to maybe do something unpopular and paternalistic that takes away some degree potentially of their liberty or at least makes it less accessible because of taxes or whatever else you're doing. And that is how you're going to increase health. And I think that one thing is that a lot of people who are in national politics or even just in state and local politics, they're there because they want to help the poor and they want things to feel fairer. And even if these things, these kinds of public health interventions may be effective, it doesn't feel necessarily good. Right. And, and so I, I do think you see a couple telling psychological flips, right? Which is if you ask people about policy ideas like taxes on sugary sodas, right? Or, you know, various just like nanny state futzing with what people can eat. You're most likely to see left or center people embracing them while right of center people, you know, want smaller government, less intervention, less paternalism. But then if you flip it and you're talking about imposing restrictions on what people can do with food stamps, 
the politics of that tend to switch, where now conservative politicians are much more likely to want to say, well, look, this is supposed to be a nutrition program. You can't buy like unhealthy right. stuff with it. And, and the difference there is that, I mean, there's a, there's a few differences, but I do think the main one is that if you can cast this specifically as a measure that is harsh on low-income people, that it begins to appeal more to conservatives, whereas if you can cast it as an issue that is is friendly to them, you know, it becomes more palatable to liberals. And in particular, it makes liberals embrace certain very ineffective versions of this. So, like, if you tell liberals, well, the problem is that we don't do enough to subsidize farmers' markets in low-income communities, right, then liberals will get very excited about that. Right. Because right. like there because you, you're trying to say the same thing, which is that the government should do something to get low income people to eat healthier food. But if you can present it as like we are offering something amazing, right, that like everybody wants to be this like yuppie with their artisanal beans and they're like something kale. And, you know, all we need to do is like provide them with like our, you know, Pinterest yep. board, then like liberals are all about that and conservatives are like, oh, we're going to waste the money. You know, if you say like, okay, let's just have a tax on Fritos, then it's like it gets a little ideologically muddled. And if you say it's like, okay, put a million rules on food stamps and say you can only use food stamps to buy frozen broccoli, then like liberals are going to hate that idea, right? And there's, you know, there's reasons for these at, at all levels. But I think you are seeing that there's a large people really align themselves around their like emotional view of low income people and so it's like liberals want to help whereas conservatives feel that they ought to help themselves and so you know depending on on how you're you're framing these ideas you get very different political reactions whereas the the data i mean is not conclusive on anything but it just it appears to suggest that the most effective measures are like the crudest. Gentle nudges do not substantially right. alter what people eat. Right. Like, that, like sharp shoves do. Yeah, sharp policies that target unhealthy behaviors directly and possibly in a very, very heavy-handed way definitely seem to work. Like right. if you just don't let people smoke in restaurants or in office buildings or basically anywhere they will smoke fewer cigarettes, work pretty well, whereas – Stuff where you're bank shotting as a way to deal with health probably works a little bit less. And well. an interesting thing about smoking, those politics of smoking, right, is that the semi fake issue of secondhand smoke was a really important driver right. of this. Yeah. One thing that happens, obviously, if I smoke in a building, is that other people who are vaguely near me smell the smoke. Yeah, I, re I remember maybe, when you right. used to smoke in buildings right. and, and, and I was and, vaguely near and, you. And, and may be annoyed by it. And that created license to say that we were kicking all the smokers outdoors constantly to help the non-smokers. If you look at the research, right, there has been meaning, it seems really meaningful public health benefits of these anti-smoking rules. But the benefits, the causal mechanism is that by making it really unpleasant to smoke, you get people to smoke less, which is very healthy for them, which is great. But you don't have that, right? If eating Fritos like necessarily caused crumbs to fall into everybody else's hair, you would now have this like political pretext to say like, oh, if you want to eat Fritos, you have to go outside in the freezing cold and rain. And then people would stop doing it. And, and I will say like I wish I have benefited 
I am one of the people who benefited from harsh anti-smoking rules, and I think I would benefit from harsh anti-snacking rules. But like, I wish that snacking was more annoying to other people and would create more sort of reason to to go for it. But that's why smoking has been like the big public health success is that people sort of got it in their heads through a I don't think the logic actually quite works because, like, a bar is a private establishment. I think the other example of this that actually works here is drinking, yeah. particularly through the mechanism of drunk driving. Yes. There's been a lot done around, I think correctly, around drunk driving that made just drinking harder. Yes. And that has, in, in broad senses, benefited a lot of a lot of drinkers. Again, sort of like second out smoking, but with a somewhat more direct causal mechanism right. on, on behalf of the innocent bystander. So all this is to say, one of the ways in which healthcare extension may ultimately produce big public health gains is that when you socialize the costs of ill health, you create the reason to go in and address the underlying drivers of unhealthiness in a way that doesn't exist when you privatize the costs, right? So, and of course, an ideologically rigorous conservative will say, well, that doesn't show we need to be paternalistic. It shows we shouldn't have socialized the cost of healthcare, but nobody cares. Uh, The fact is that we have. And, you know, it means that particularly if you imagine, you know, Medicaid expansion everywhere, everybody in the Obamacare system, suddenly everyone's health is everyone else's business. And you like have a reason to fuss them about, you know, their snacking and whether they walk enough and and all this other stuff. Which is what, by the way, a lot of conservatives were afraid of and worried about with Obamacare. They would create exactly that. I'm, I'm a little less convinced than you will that you don't see that, I think, very heavily among the elderly, for instance. I don't think that we have put down a lot of punitive rules about how the elderly like have to go exercise. I mean, I'm not saying it's like a no brainer, but it's closer, right? It's a bit closer. I just do think it's like the more you knit people together, the more you have some kind of like reason to, to go and go and do it. I think it's a good place to close for today. Boom. Weeds. Another fun episode of The Weeds. We miss our, our friend and colleague Sarah Cliff this week, but we hope she's having fun in France. I want to thank our producer, AC Valdez. Please share the podcast on Facebook, on Twitter, wherever fine podcasts are downloaded. And we will see you next week. <laughs>